morning, ladies and gentlemen, of course. I'm your host, Jessica Lee, and welcome back to another episode of I Don't Give a Sip, where we dish about the latest influencer insanity, bring you educational content to improve your own health and fitness, and answer all of your questions, both serious and not so much. Please remember to like, comment, and subscribe, as that helps us get this content out to as many of you beautiful people as possible. Grab the carafe, fill up your mug, sip back, and enjoy. everyone welcome back to another episode um today we have a very special guest this is our first male guest dom you should feel very very special i do um last episode carly and i talked a lot about a lot of different things um and one of the things that we had discussed prior to recording was a question that we got on um, training till failure. And at the time we kind of decided that we wanted another person's opinion. So why not bring on the man himself, Mr. Dom Cusa, AKA brother Dom to me. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> <like> a month. <laughs> I know that's why I like saying brother Dom. Um, okay. So Dom, I know a lot of people listening probably already know who you are, but could you give a short little intro? For those of you, uh, for those that don't know who you are, uh, so my name's Dominic Kuza. Uh, I'm a coach on gifted performance. I do a lot of bodybuilding prep. I also have a lot of lifestyle clients as well. I probably have more lifestyle clients than I do bodybuilding prep clients. Um, my master's degree was in exercise physiology, and then I did like my master's work on protein synthesis and amino acids, and then. Um, me, Justin, I've worked together for a while. Uh, we worked at a gym together and then, you know, online coaching, helped each other out a little bit. And then when I joined Gifted, I talked to Ryan, who is the owner of Gifted, and said it would be a good idea to bring her on to kind of further expand the women's end of coaching um, because that's her niche. So that's pretty much my story. I just work a lot and coach a lot. <laughs> Yep. And without you, I probably would not be making a living. So thanks. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right. So going into our first question, um, how often should we be training till failure and should quote unquote failure be to the point of reaching a PR? Who's answering first? You, of course, we brought you on. Oh, let's hear it. So, and I had, let me read this question again. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I think, I don't think, first, I don't think failure determines if something's a PR. I think you can make PRs and personal bests, personal records uh, without reaching failure. I think it's probably something that's more like of a novice thing where people think that failure equals PR. Because, you know, let's take a kid that just gets into the gym. He's trying to just bench with his friends. He gets up to the, that 185 bench press. It's a one rep max for him. That's a personal best. So for him, as a novice lifter, right away, he thinks, okay, personal best equals failure. 
at this, you know, one rep max thing. Um, but I don't think, you know, as you get more intermediate, more advanced into training, you know, personal best, personal records don't equate to failure. Um, you know, I could use myself as an example with like my deadlift training. I can, you know, my personal best personal records are more of doing more reps than they are getting to failure. So that's why I don't think it's, I don't think failure is the point where, you know, your personal records are set, your personal bests are always set. For, you know, majority of the time, yes, you do end up failing as part of getting up there, but I think there's a lot of personal records, personal bests you can achieve without getting to that failure point. So I don't think, um, I don't think the point of failure should be always pushing this PR personal best area. Um, I think, uh, you know, I think failure training, obviously with us at Gifted, we are more on the sides of RPE, RIR style training where we're, you know, measuring all fatigue measurements and making sure we're controlling fatigue accumulation and we're, you know, keeping those things steady so that we're not overreaching really fast or, you know, even getting to a state of overtraining really fast. Um, because that's the biggest thing you see with people who try to train to failure every session. One, it's, in, in my opinion, impossible um, to a point where it's pure failure training every single session. It's very taxing on your CNS. You're not going to be able to come into the gym the next day and do it again for another body part. Um, and I think that's where you can see some people that, you know, can achieve that, but they have to take a rest day the next day because just how completely battered they are from that kind of session. But um, so when it comes to failure training, I think failure training should be introduced, but not as often as, you know, quote unquote, the hardcore lifters like to talk about it because, you know, we can look at like statistical data and like even videos of people who claim to train to failure. We, you know, there's good research that shows like what people reported as failure was more so like a five RIR once an intervention came in like a trainer and they pushed them even further. But in that person would have said this was failure. But if they had somebody there yelling at them to do more reps, they would have got more reps. And, you know, so what was really failure at that point? And then every body part's different when it comes to this whole gauging of failure. You're, you, might, you, might, you might stop your leg session or your leg exercise faster because of how much it hurts or burns rather than like your bicep curl. So gauging failure for body parts as well is difficult to do. That's why I think it's hard to just say like, oh, we train to failure uh, because it's just a blanket statement that, you know, for the most part, usually is false. Um, and that's where I think, I think RIR and RPE style training has a good benefit because as somebody gets better at gauging these two away from failure, these RPEs of like eight, nine, they get better at getting closer to failure. They have a better chance of reaching that proximity of failure, which we know is even more stimulating. So that's where I think like those styles are a lot better than, you know, this whole trying to get the failure every single session.
Yeah, I, um, the reason I, like, so that question kind of came about, um, cause one of my uh, girlfriends, her husband had asked me that question and it made me think about how, and Dom and I go to the same gym to give, uh, context to this whole conversation that's about to happen for a second and i feel like a lot of the younger guys that are i don't want to say new to the bodybuilding space but in a way i guess yeah because they're trying to become like bodybuilder bros um i feel like they're always trying to lift as heavy as they absolutely can when you go into the gym and dom i'm sure like you know what i'm talking about like you've seen it um and I think there's, like, this misconception of, like, you have to get a PR every single week. Or you have to train till failure um, every week. Yeah. Well, see, I think that's where that's where we could say, like, personal records, like PRs, they can be just, like, a basic part of progressive overload like if you did one more rep than the week prior technically that's a personal record if you've never done it before but you didn't reach failure and i think that's where like that novice lifter has issues with that and we see that at the gym that we go to um but you know you know like and then carly would know this too like there's a point of diminishing returns that this whole trying to get to failure and crazy heavy weight gets to and the body just can't recover at that point absolutely yeah so it's a big training scheme right in in the in the let's say bodybuilding world so it sounds like a blanket statement but it is but there's also this this big controversy around it correct like is reps to failure really beneficial? Are we just chasing that pump? Is it, I, I guess the thing for me where I get held up and it's a couple of things, Don, that you've also mentioned um, are RPE, right? Our ratings of perceived exertion, our RIR, our reps in reserve. And then of course our reps to failure. The thing is like all three of those styles of training, there's this huge element of subjectivity, right? Where it's like, are you really failing? Is it really a, a you know, a, a, a 10? on the RPE or, um, any higher or, or, um, you know, who, who's to say that it's really the most challenging. So just to your point, it's like, is it a PR? Um, well, it might be based on the volume or the, the set volume or the quantity of reps that you're getting. Um, but I, I want to say a lot of the basis behind it has a lot to do with the metabolic stress that's incurred. Right. Yeah. And then as each, every single rep that's performed, we have more and more muscle fiber recruitment, right? But that's on the same, you know, the, the same side of, or the, uh, the other side of the same coin is saying, well, too much is a bad thing, right? And then we have way more muscle damage. We have an issue with muscle recovery. Um, unfortunately, a lot of people that are training that way may not know, hey, I actually need to give myself a little bit more time to recover from it. So is it a is it a useful tool in the toolbox? Yeah, cool. It could be, right? But every single time that we're training, probably not. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think a good point she uh Carly made was one one thing we see too is is the the I almost tell people like look at it as like two pool of resources. You have resources to grow and you have resources to recover with 
or I'm sorry, look at it as one pool of resources and you have to do both of these things in order to grow. If muscle damage is so high, those resources just end up trying to recover and there's nothing left over to grow with. And I think that's where like you run into the issues with like this constant trying to push it like that and this failure and these really heavy sets, these really CNS taxing sets and stuff you're you're pulling just more resources away from growth and just trying to recover the system because you just beat it up so hard and you know again you can make the counter argument with rpe and rir as the person gauging correctly right you can make that counter argument all day because it's a hard thing to understand and gauge um but you know so they both have you know their pluses and minuses to them um, you know, that's not to say like one's better than the other. Cause I know, I know a lot of guys that train both ways and you couldn't tell a difference between them because of just how developed they both are. Um, but like, uh, another thing too, like with, you know, the younger crowd, um, the, it's, it's, it's an ego, more psychological thing where they're, they want to look cool. They want to do heavy weights. They want to record videos, post them on Instagram, like, and we talk about that in kind of like a laughing way, but it's, it's, it's a very serious thing too, because essentially that's what they do a lot of this lifting for, because they're at that age of trying to find their identity, trying to do these things so that they can gain a popularity or, you know, as sad as it is, get a lot of likes or, you know, things like that. And, you know, there's good literature to show that like a lot of that stuff is not effective for the muscle building they're trying to actually do that's scary to think about why because then it makes well it makes me think like because a lot of these the younger crowd um i think of like senior and high school fresh into college kind of thing and like hey i know i'm i'm close to that age but i'm not trying to you know put myself in that <laughs> that population um but like it, it makes me i don't know it's concerning to me maybe it's just because i'm like more of like that um mindful nurturing type of person but it makes me worry about like mental health a couple years down the road when like their training is in a way like they're not gonna they're not seeing the results that they're expecting they're going to see and then that's that defeating feeling of like wait a second i thought i was like doing everything right mm -hmm. yeah and i got the attention i got the following because i'm doing something right and then you see the you know yeah and i think i think you could see it a lot when you just look at these people you see them year after year and they don't change mm -hmm. nothing nothing changes like they look the same the same size all these things and it's I think it's because of the connection that their attachment to social has on their, it has an influence on the way they train Yeah. because of, you know, no, it's not cool to record a video doing 15 reps. Like, but to that, you know, that's kind of where I see like that has influence on their actual training. Um, you know, which, you know, at the gym, like we go to, like, there's a lot of younger people and I try to, I try to, pick out the ones I want to help and then, you know, give them some solid advice every once in a while. 
Because I, I think that there is, as with any trading modality, as with any sort of, even if it's like a trend or a fad in training, there usually, maybe I'm just being optimistic, usually there's some kind of perk or benefit that we can see, right? We could sit down and grab a piece of paper and write down a list of pros and cons, right? For any and all, perhaps, um, modes of training. Um, and I think the same could be said here. There's a reason why reps to failure exists. But I think the more important question when someone actually, you know, is, is, um, is, um, you know, considering this as part of an addition into the training is, well, why, like, why do I need to actually add it into my training? What is it about reps to failure, for example, that, um, would potentially benefit me, help me reach my goal. If it's just because you want to look cool or you think you, you want to look what you think is cool, right? On social media or to mm -hmm. your friends or whatever the case, then that's, that's questionable, right? That's probably a, like a huge red flag of, um, well, that's probably, you know, you should probably just sit down, um, and, and not yeah. go about that, right? Or just continue on with your standard, uh, training because there is also, think about it, a huge risk of injuring yourself with reps to failure especially if you're someone yeah. who, who records, right? Oh, last week I got, uh, you know, 225 for 18 reps, right? Yeah, right. But you get what I'm saying. And then next week yeah. you get a 19th and it's like, oh, I got it. But was it really a full rep? Was it, was it good form? Did you potentially injure yourself in the process? Um, or, you know, are you paving the way for future injuries? Um, so again, I, I think a big question to ask oneself when approaching training or this training modality is why? You know, is it to be yeah. cool? Is it to stay in, in with the latest and greatest trends? Or is it because you actually understand the research behind it? You know how to do it properly and you can do so. You can execute those repetitions with good form. Yeah, I think um, that's a good point. I think, um, I mean, I can't, I don't know. I just feel like a lot of times people have the, their motive behind why they choose to embark on like a, a training um, journey, whether it be RIR, um, or anything like that. Like, I think you have to like, kind of sit back and think to yourself, what is the end goal? It's not, I mean, yeah, we all want to look great. Don't get me wrong. But if that's like solely the purpose of it and not wanting to take the time to understand the true benefit behind why you're training, I think that's something else that sets people up for, failure in a sense or not even failure but just like set someone up for being disappointed in the end because they're not able to follow through fully with the actual program because they didn't take the time to really understand I guess the science behind it or like take the time to hire a coach to work with someone to understand you know the reasoning of why they are training the way they're training yeah sure and I guess another question would be why um, rest of failure and not something, um, like drop sets, right? If you're really chasing, yeah. um, metabolic stress, um, why not try something that's perhaps a little bit, uh, less risky maybe? Yeah. So here's a question just popped into my head. Um, what is there actually a benefit for doing like eight sets of something? And that might be a little over-exaggerated. So hold on a second. Let me explain. Um, like, hypothetically here's the scenario you're going for a squat on smith machine let's say you have two sets of a warm-up then you increase the weight 
you do another set there, increase the weight, do another two sets there, increase the weight again. But the whole time, so I'm doing a poor job explaining this now that I'm thinking about it. The whole time you're doing it, like your reps are going down each time. So then by the time you get to your last, let's say you do six sets, your set five and set six are, I don't know, like a two RIR, one RIR. And you're doing like eight reps when you originally started like warm up set, maybe like 15 reps. And then as you, am I doing it? Am I explaining this? Okay. Cause I know people that actually do this. And when I like listen to them talk about it, I like, I don't have the heart to be like, listen, I don't know <laughs> if I would do that. Cause that's just not how I'm used to training. Um, so, but are, I want to know if there's actual benefit to it. Are they manipulating the, the, the load? on the bar or, or the double, like the yeah, weight? Yeah, like the weight goes up. Okay. Like as so they like increase pyramid, reps, basically. the weight can, yeah, it's like a pyramid. Uh-huh. But I just never, I always thought like eight sets of something is kind of insane. It, it is. It, it sounds over much. It yeah. is. But the, the thing is with, when we increase, um, when we increase load, when we increase e- external load, when we increase um, repetitions, we are um, collectively increasing training volume. Right. And training volume is directly um, proportional to our adaptations to training. So in theory, right on paper, it's like, oh, yeah, that sounds good. But again, it's all sort of in the hands of the exerciser, the, the person who's actually performing the exercise. Are they doing so with good uh, with good form? Um, you know, are they adjusting to an appropriate weight or are they just kind of willy nilly with the plates on the bar? Yeah. You know? Yeah, I just, um, I think when I hear it, I think of like how it just sounds like it's too much and it kind of goes back to putting more stress on the body than needs to be with the training session. Like I understand there are going to be training sessions where you are, um, you know, I think of RIR because that's just what my default is because I've done it for a while now. And so I understand that there will be training sessions where you are going to, you know, zero to one reps and reserve type deal. But then when I hear how people are doing like five, four or five, like actual working sets, even that to me, I'm just like, it's not right. I don't know. It just doesn't sit well with me. It's training volume. Yeah, I, don't know. I think, uh, I always tell people to use the same weight for all working sets so that you have some measure of, tracking Mm -hmm. something because if you let's say you're squatting 135 pounds for you know first set of 10 it was like a three rir and then you do a second set of 135 and you get like nine and that's a three rir at least you can tell how you are fatiguing if you went from 135 pounds to 175 pounds we really don't know what like your fatigue you know, metrics are because, you know, you added 40 pounds of load and then, you know, what at that point you're, yes, you can log like that, but you're missing the whole fatigue portion of it. You, you need to understand how you fatigue, how you recover. Um, that's why I think things like eight sets, 10 sets, like I, I think a lot of it ends up turning into just junk volume. Yeah, where it's mm-hmm. just non-effective volume because, like Carly said, like, is your form still good? No, it's. Yeah. I guarantee your form's not good mm-hmm. at set seven, eight, nine. 
you know, you're, you're probably cheating more with your toes or, you know, there's something going on that's, you know, compensating to help you. And that, that, that essentially turns into junk volume and that's how people get hurt. Yes, absolutely. A lot of the times you see a lot of people's injuries come in when they're doing these like seven, eight, nine sets of things, um, Mm -hmm. because you know, they're just done. They need to just be done and move on to the next movement. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so you're saying, go ahead, Carly. I I actually just kind of had a a thought spur from something that Dom, that you said, um, you always have them perform, um, the same weight throughout an entire, um, exercise. Um, but what about if you were, let's say we had someone perform, you know, their, their first set of bench, um, 135 and they did go up on their next set. If they were to record their, um, RPE after set one at 135 of X amount of reps, right? Let's say they did eight or 10. Um, and then that next set, they go up and again, log their RPE after that set. That's something that they can compare, right? If they are sitting there saying, you know, I, for whatever reason, can't wrap my head around staying at the same weight for the entire exercise. Um, there are ways, you know, that we can sort of, um, manipulate, right. Other things that we're tracking and recording. And that's another way that someone could potentially, um, you know, track their progress, right. Track their, um, their gains over time. Yeah, no, for sure. I agree. Um, but, uh, what was I going to say? Oh yeah. Back to like the drop set stuff Mm -hmm. that she was, uh, that Carly was saying, that's where I think like, um, like I think there's a certain point of like how much tension you can handle and that's where I think the weight needs to stop and that's where you can use things like a drop sets or even back down sets where you cut the weight mm-hmm. back and you work in higher rep ranges um, because we know that metabolite accumulation training is hypertrophy it causes hypertrophy um, so that's where I think like if I do, like I do this with my stiff leg deadlifts, for example, I build up to my heavy sets of, you know, whatever weight I'm prescribed and I do my, try to get my rep target within my RIR. And then the next set after that is a big cut to weight, but it's to get me into that 15 plus rep range where a lot of metabolic stress is happening and a lot of different training stimulation is happening. Uh, That way I kind of, you know, without having to do another heavy set, potentially breaking form and, you know, having a higher risk of injury after the first heavy set, I could back down the weight a lot and then work into this like metabolic training, I guess you could call it, uh, you know, set. And I find that really effective because, I I like training in in both rep ranges these these lower lower heavier stimulating ones and then these really high you know rep ranges because you know most of yes some muscles are more predominant in some muscle fiber types but you know we have a good amount of a mix in most of the muscles we have and use so uh, training within different rep ranges is always a good thing to do I agree That's my take on No it, I, I agree with you so would you... And she has a PhD, so... <laughs> Everyone listen things. to Carly right now. <laughs> I've read some books. <laughs> okay, so with that being said, with, like, training in different rep ranges, would you 
do like for example let's say you have two lower body days would one lower body day consist of certain movements within like an eight to ten rep range and then some in like 12 to 15 or would you split it where like lower one is all eight to ten and then lower two is 12 to 15 or does it is it all individual i I know i know people that do both they do okay. like the one day of the week is very heavy lower rep the other day of the week is very lower weight higher rep um in my opinion i think doing both in a session is better i think because you get exposed more often so you have better chance of adapting rather than letting you be exposed to this stimulus once a week maybe you're getting exposed to the stimulus now twice a week if both of your sessions are like that um because you know ultimately we're we're looking for i mean it's like it's it is it's human evolution right it's it's adapting to a stimulus the stimulus has to reach a threshold in order for adaptation to occur the more we are exposed to the stimulus the higher chance we get to adapt to it so I think doing the training in both sessions um, a little bit mixed increases your frequency of being exposed. And I think that could probably lead to a little bit better adaptation, you know, rather than just leaving it once a week like that. Because we're not, and it's not just muscle, you know, there's mitochondrial like adaptations that happen. There's cardiorespiratory adaptations that happen. There's a lot of other adaptations that happen that can be really beneficial to all of your training. Therefore, you're just training at better, you know, performance matters. Yeah, um, I, I think uh, something along the lines of like a like your core movements, your big movements, um, maybe lower in rep, a little higher on the intensity scale, um, and your accessory exercises um, a little bit higher in rep ranges, lower in weight. Um, seems to be a nice balance, although that is definitely anecdotal. Um, I think that that is a, it's very nice, um, yeah. uh, you know, approach to things, but you, you have a good point just because there's different styles of, um, progression where someone might start with something that's very linear, right? Especially right out of the gates when they're just starting training, um, they're prescribed, you know, you're working out at this intensity, um, you're performing these exercises, this is your rep range, don't fall short, don't go beyond, right? Um, And then you progressively overload from there, um, something very linear. And um, alternatively, you might see something like an undulating program where things go, um, you know, maybe Monday you're performing something that is, high weight, low rep Wednesday, you're, you know, performing something that is, um, high weight or the opposite. I can't remember what I just said. Um, but you know, to sort of, um, trick your body into seeing little bits of progression, um, that latter being, um, oftentimes more beneficial for someone who's like super highly trained where those, um, that progress is, or those gains, I should say, are so few and far between that something like that, it's kind of, you know, you mix things up and you'll start to see, itty bitty albeit but progression nonetheless yeah i um something you just said i don't remember something about switching it up uh-huh. i don't something like one word you said and i was like this reminds you of something so 
I feel like so many people, and it's kind of starting to change. Like, I'm noticing a little bit when I, like, see people posting, like, training on, like, social media and stuff. But for the most part, I feel like people are still convinced that they have to train different movements every week instead of sticking with a consistent movement for a certain, um, like, a longer period of time and just focusing on changing weight, changing intensity can we talk about that? Cause I feel like, so yeah, absolutely. I don't know. I, you know, this as silly as it sounds, all that came to mind when you said that was think about, think about your response to, um, like when you go to think about like a soft serve machine, right? You got two flavors and maybe a swirl in the mid. So you have three, yeah. right? You go to an ice cream shop, they have all those little containers right? All these options. And you're like overwhelmed. Like I have to try all of them. I need a, I need a cone with four scoops on it. And all those four scoops don't make any sense together. They're disgusting. It's, it's a bad mix. Whereas if you had just stayed with your soft serve, right? It's clean, mm-hmm. um, you know, and clear and options are minimized. So you're not getting lost in, um, you know, sort of the, the waves of all of these um, choices to make. Yeah. You know, there's all these exercises. Now you then, go on Pinterest and type in um, any kind of exercise and you have variations out the wazoo. And it's like, is this safe? Is this good? Are these effective? I would also just like to say that I feel like these people make up exercises <laughs> just to make them look good. Yeah. Because some of the stuff I've seen other women do, I'm like, what is that even working? But it's an angle where her ass looks nice. And like, hey, you know what? Good for you, sister. Like, I'm rooting for you regardless. But at the same time, there's other women or people in general. Doesn't doesn't even have to be targeted towards women. But people are believing that these are actual exercises and then performing them and then like not seeing results but not realizing that certain exercises that they're doing aren't even like, I mean, you know what I mean? I do. Yeah. 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 I think that boils down to the intensity of exercise. There is, there is a minimum threshold of intensity. You know, the thing about what I have found, um, is I'm not going to lie. When I was like immediate postpartum, um, I, I performed things like that. You know, these little exercises that were like, I've never heard of this before, but it's getting me moving. It's something that I can do while I'm literally holding my, my newborn child in my arms and I can do yeah. it. You know, I can do these body weight squats or these little donkey kicks, yeah. things like that, you know? Um, but you end up, you feel like you've done great work because you get this, this, uh, transient sort of like pump, right? You get all this blood yeah. rushing into that muscle and that feeling of like, okay, cool. Yeah. I just did something and you did, but will it yeah. lead to hypertrophy? Will it lead to, um, you know, fat loss or, uh, any type of meaningful adaptation, most likely not, because like I said, it's, it's not, it, it doesn't meet that minimum threshold of intensity to really elicit any type of, um, true adaptation. Yeah. So can we like dive into that a little bit more? Because I feel like I've had women that have come to me that want like they're they're feeling discouraged or disappointed because they have done x y and z booty band workout at home stuff which there's nothing wrong with that like if you're a stay-at-home mom or if you can't get out of the house like when covid was a thing Mm -hmm. that was like such an issue for a lot of people because they weren't going to gyms they didn't have a gym at home so they just ordered bands online did what they could which i totally understand but 
I have the conversation quite often with clients about weight training and how resistance training, getting into the gym, doing that kind of uh, movement is so much more effective than your booty band workout or your at-home workout with, you know, five, ten pounds. Let's just kind of talk about that for a second because I feel like maybe there's this... um, I don't know, misconception because it's all over social um, that people think that because the person that is demonstrating that booty band workout and has a butt that just looks phenomenal that they got that from the booty band workout. Not to say that they, you know, it doesn't have its effects, but that person has to do weight training. Sure, I agree. You know what I mean? But they don't market it that way. So then... As the consumer, we're like, what the heck? You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. maybe, I don't know if you guys want to talk about that, but so, I feel like it would be. Uh, Dom, you might you might know the answer to this, but I, I believe the minimum threshold for hypertrophy in, in, in a um, uh, cut and dry research setting, I want to say is 30% of max. Yeah. That's correct? 30 to, it's, it's effective between 30 to 85% of your one rep max. And I, I think I know where you're going with this. Like, is a band providing 30%? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So back to my point where it's like, we feel like we've done work and we have, we've performed mechanical yeah. work, right? With body weight exercises, even with a, you know, a, a band that provides five, 10 pounds of resistance, you know, that's something, but is it enough is the lingering question, right? Is it a, enough to, um, you know, evoke any type of actual adaptation. Um, but then the point could also be argued metabolic stress does technically, um, you know, promote different adaptations as well. And let's be honest, guys, for those people who, especially when it was COVID and the, the option was either do nothing or yeah. do something, you know, some silly little uh, YouTube video, or um, I shouldn't say that. There are a lot of great videos out there. Um, but, you know, little exercises that we find on the internet, um, those, if it's the option of doing nothing versus that, by all means, right. That's, it's definitely better than zero. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. No, yeah, I agree too. Um, but I guess we, so to backtrack a little bit, like, uh, new exercises, like you might have clients that want new exercises pretty yeah. often. Then you were, you were asking like, can we talk about that? Like, why is that not ideal? And I think the novelty stimulus and novelty stress that that brings, we know is pretty taxing on the nervous system initially because your body's, you know, neurologically has to mm-hmm. learn this new movement. And again, going back to those resources, those that resource pool, when there's a lot of novelty stimulus, like a lot of new movements, again, a lot of those resources get pulled into recovery and not into adaptation or growth. Um, so that's why, like, you know, if we're changing movements, we're changing a few, uh, a, a session, we're not changing five each session, you know, we're changing one accessory, maybe one compound and, you know, moving on from there so that it's just not too much at once to throw at you. Um, and then, you know, when you're talking about clients at home, that now we're at the point where, um, you know, gyms and things are regularly open and, you know, we're trying to convert 
home working out to, hey, let's, you know, I don't know, like, I don't want to say encourage going to the gym, but I guess in a way we are, you know, because we want them to have more accessibility to things to yeah. see more progress. You know, we go back to how Carly was just talking about, like, is a band 30% of your one rep max? Yeah. Probably not. Um, and you probably outgrew the band pretty quickly in terms of, you know, muscularity. But people have to remember, too, that you're not just getting a muscular adaptation. You're getting a neurological one, too. You're getting better. It, your brain is getting better at learning a movement. So that band becomes less effective more quickly because the tension you know, gives at a certain point and, you know, at that, and then there's really no stimulus or really getting out of it. Um, because, you know, you look at the band workouts for an example, and in those band workouts, we see, you know, five sets of 50, like is five sets of 50. Is that a good stimulus for, you know, hypertrophy? No, it's not. <laughs> So that's where, like, I would encourage, like, if you're hesitant on going to the gym, maybe look into getting some adjustable dumbbells or an adjustable kettlebell, something like that at home so that we can, like, even wrap the bands around them and cause more tension, bring some new, um, you know, load to your workout at home and everything like that. Because I think that's where, you know, I still have a lot of clients that are still... I'm not going to say scared, but hesitant to go to the gym, um, you know, just because of everything going on. And, uh, but I've had to have a conversation with them like, Hey, keep, be mindful that you don't have the things at home necessary at this point to make a lot of muscular progress because it's just not going to happen. You've been training out of your house for two years now. You know, you don't want to drop thousands of dollars on a lot of heavy equipment and everything like that. So we have to be mindful that, hey, this, this is that threshold. You're there, you know, you know, try to maybe look into a gym, go once a week, twice a week, something like that, just to slowly ease back in or slowly, you know, expose yourself to heavier things and, and things like that. Because I think that's where, that's where the home training now is probably picking up a lot of issues because of a lot of people starting doing that in 2020 mm -hmm. still doing it today but they haven't purchased new things yeah i mean dude gym stuff's really expensive home gym equipment's really expensive and you know they so they probably haven't bought a lot yeah. and you know now the load the bands all that stuff at home it doesn't do it anymore because it's just not they're they're overtrained they're not or not overtrained but they're they're more advanced trained now they're not a beginner anymore they've been exposed to this for a long time and if it's not muscular their brain is just really good at it now yeah yeah so they're no longer beginner but they're they're doing beginner weights right there's just like a lack of progression at a certain point yeah yeah wow you guys unpacked that like there's a no tomorrow yeah we're a good team <laughs> yeah look at you guys <laughs> go sheesh all right um okay well i feel like i had a question but now i'm forgetting what i was gonna say oh for someone that's just starting out 
training. Maybe they've weightlifted a little bit, kind of dabbled with it, but not too advanced or exposed. I feel like that's the word we've been using today. Do you recommend that they, like what type of approach, I'm going to start the question that way. What type of approach do you think they should take to their training methods? Should it be an RIR? Should they, like, you know what what I'm trying to say? Does that make sense? They're they're fresh, like green, never done it before. Like, maybe lifted a little bit, like, kind of, like, got into the gym, like, hey, I like lifting, cool, but, like, that's it. What would you recommend for someone? You know what I mean? Yeah, I would recommend, if it was me recommending to somebody that, like, maybe they trained five years ago, stopped, and are trying to get back into it now, I would tell them to either train full body Mm -hmm. every other day or train upper lower um, like kind of style split, not no bro split, no push pull legs, um, because novice lifters like that can get a lot out of a little bit. So, um, that's why full body is pretty good for like a first timer. Uh, they grow pretty quickly off of it and even upper lower again, it's not as specified and everything like that, but it's still really stimulating to a really novice lifter. And then when it came to like, if it comes to training modality, um, I actually kind of go on the ends of not doing RPE or RIR because they have no clue what they're going to feel. I kind of tell them like, go until your rep is about to, or your form is about to break. And that's where you stop. So if you're doing a bicep curl and you notice after one rep, um, your shoulder starts coming up with it, that's your last rep. And then move on. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you notice you're doing, you know, pull downs and you start swinging backwards, that's your last rep. Move on. Um, just to get them used to like, okay, this is where my form's breaking. Get them comfortable with noticing those cues. And then, you know, later down the road, you can introduce, you know, whether you're you know, whether you coach with tra- failure or whether you coach with like a exertion kind of metric. Yeah. That's, that's how I would do it. Yeah. I, I think that's good. Um, I wanted to share with you guys. So when I was, um, this was for my master's, it was me and, um, one of my other colleagues, we actually did, uh, a research study together and sort of broke down the data. He took some and I took the other, um, but we actually were looking at um, the effects of a couple of different types of supplements on, um, or rather in a population of untrained young men. So college aged, untrained men who had no prior history of um, resistance training. And the thing that we told them was pick a weight that you feel like you can't perform more than 10 times, Um, which when you first say it, it's like, how the heck am I supposed to know that? Right. Especially if this is the first time that somebody's picking a dumbbell up in their life. Um, but purpose behind it being, we can plug that data into a prediction equation and then give them a better idea of what their, uh, projected one rep max would actually be. So we can assign, uh, you know, a, a better or more, uh, specific training load. Um, so although it was a little bit hairy in the beginning, you know, because these guys are like, I've never lived two weights in my life. How do you, you know, how do you expect me to just automatically figure it out? Right. Um, it makes sense once, once you're under the weight. Um, and I know that's not an answer. That's not a clear cut answer, but that's just kind of how it is or how it works. 
So choose yeah. a weight you can't do too many times, right? All right. Very cool. I think that answers my question. Um, okay, where are we at? What time is it? How long do you guys okay. go for? Usually like an hour. Okay. We got like 10 minutes. What was the other question that you asked in the chat? Yeah. Um, okay, so how do you guys deal with days or weeks of not training your best? And I came up with that question um, because I, I feel like I, I go through it and then I hear clients give me feedback and they feel so discouraged when they have like a week where their training was off or, you know, a day where they were just exhausted. Maybe they didn't get enough water and enough sleep. So then their training was affected by it. Um, what do you guys experience that? Cause I'm sure we kind of all do, but I think hearing it from people that are, um, you know, professionals in the space kind of eases people's minds so yeah like so me personally yeah uh yeah i mean with an i mean i've felt it the past couple sessions just because of like broken sleep and stuff but um uh how do i deal with it i don't know i don't even really think about it i kind of just get on with it if i'm having a few days in a row i'll just take the rest of the week off and not even bother training because my body's telling me something that yeah. it needs to recover at that point. Mm -hmm. And, and that's stuff I even tell clients to, um, they have a really bad session or something. I tell them, Hey, we're just don't train the rest of the week. Um, and then usually that fixes a lot of things because, you know, we only know so much about ourselves. Like we can pre-program deloads, we can do those things, but you know, let's say you're, on a real good streak and you're really cranking out sessions and you know then you get a couple of days of bad sleep a couple of days of bad you know hydration you know and that starts to dwindle down then at that point it's like well one am i going to be am i going to be trying to push you know my logbook and that weight i'm supposed to be doing effectively is it going to cause an injury um you know let's weigh out the risk versus reward you know, for pushing a couple of sessions rather than just taking a couple of days off. Uh, you know, that's how I would do it, you know, myself is I would take, if I was having a really bad couple of sessions, I would take the rest of the week just completely off and not even deal with it because I think, you know, your body's going to make you deload eventually. And it's, you know, whether you want yeah. to or not, your body's going to say like, I can't handle anymore, you know, at this point, like where we need to take a break. And you'll know that you'll feel that um, like those days you go into the gym, you grab weights and they're just like three times the weight that they normally feel like, like that's a, you know, a clear cut sign that, you know, something's off. It might not be that you're dehydrated or had bad sleep. You know, you just might not mentally be there or, you know, nervous system might not be there uh, as far as like recovered from your last session or a long day of work the day before is very taxing to your uh, nervous system. Yeah. Um, so all those things I think you can, you know, look at, there's a lot of biofeedback you can read off of yourself. Um, and then like, if you're a coach and you're trying to help a client and biofeedback so important, because if we look at, you know, if I have a client with a bad session, right. Or a bad week and I break down a bunch of things, how is your sleep? 
It was okay. Okay. How was your digestion this week? It was really bad. Okay. Why was your digestion bad? Maybe they're stressed. Are you having a lot of stress this week? Yes. Okay. So we have stress, we have bad digestion. So maybe bad nutrient absorption, all these things kind of come together and affect training. And then, you know, from that we could say, okay, if we can't remove, let's say work is your stressor, we can't just not go to work. So we have to remove a different stressor because they're trying to push through that to train and the training is just making it worse. So we have to remove something and we can remove training. We can't remove work. So, you know, from that biofeedback, we remove work or we remove, remove training. They feel, they start feeling better. And, um, you know, so there's just a lot of different biofeedback you can use to kind of collectively, um, you know, put that all together. Uh, and I think that's a good segue into what I talked about on my Instagram yesterday about um, coach client communication and like the differences of, you know, good biofeedback, good communication, and the unnecessary emotional attachment some clients have. Um, because some clients get the emotional attachment of communicating with their coach so so uh so strong to the point where they don't want to communicate negative things because they think it will upset the coach or you know make the coach mad or make them disappointed and that's where the communication has to you know be separate from emotion and the friendship that they have so that you can get these things because then how would i know that you needed to take a week off i wouldn't have known because you kept it you know held in at that point Mm -hmm. So I guess yep. just the, the original question was um, um, not performing your best. How do you handle it? And I think the, the thing to focus on, Don, you're, you're hitting on everything that I'm about to say, but it's just that um, for the people who maybe are in this position where they feel like, oh, God, I've had like a terrible, I've had a shitty week of training, you know, I have XYZ going on, all these things. It's take a look at what do you, what is, how are you actually defining not bringing my best or not having the best workout, right? Is it that my strength levels are way down? I'm doing way fewer reps than I was during, you know, my, my last exercise or my, uh, my last, um, training session. Um, is it that my head's just not there and I'm all over the place there? Is it that my, um, energy levels are down? You know, what is it that's actually, um, leading to this, uh, again, you know, this, this broad statement of I'm not performing my best and all of those things, Dom, you just had that biofeedback is, is so essential. One thing that I'm going to add um, as a woman, and since we are, um, you know, this is a, a woman's podcast is uh, there's a lot of things that change throughout a month, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the biggest things, maybe this is just me as a woman, um, but one of the biggest things that I've always had such a, a, a grand curiosity for is how the heck people approach every single workout, just assuming that they have the same, they're presenting with the same body every single day yeah. where it's like, and maybe for a man, you guys, it's just like, it's the same, it's the same thing every day, Monday through Friday or Monday through Sunday, same, same body coming <laughs> to work out. But with a woman, it's like, well, pff, it's day one. Right. Or it's day 25. Don't talk to me right now. And every single one of those days, exactly. And that's something that is, um, I don't know if it's just an assumption or we take it for granted or what, but all of those things have such a huge impact on, um, not just our physiological performance, um, our physical performance, but also just mentally, where are you? Right. Are you here? Are you in the set? Are you under the weight? Are you with it? Or are you like out, you know, in La La Land thinking about that fight that you just had with so-and-so? 
So there's a lot of things yeah. that go into performance, I guess, is in a nutshell what I'm saying. Yeah, I um, I agree. I think, well, I mean, sorry, Dom. Like, this is a girl's podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to talk about girl stuff. But I think that, like, that is such, like, a good point to make, especially, like, if you are a female feeling these things towards training right now or maybe in the past or you just understand what we're saying um there is so much that goes into like our training is so affected by the time of the month it doesn't even have to be that like you're on your period it could be the week before your period it could be the week after your period it's just like everyone is so individual um and I guess, I don't know, maybe guys don't have to, Dom, do you guys, do guys deal with this stuff? Like, what is it? Like, you guys just hop into the gym, you're like, yeah, today, you know, I'm just tired. That's what it is. Didn't drink enough water, didn't sleep enough, I'm tired. Or do you guys, like, sit and think about, like, well, you know? I must be PMSing. I, must know. Be I can't say we do. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, so... I don't know. I just... It's another layer to consider as a woman. It's another layer to yeah. consider. Yeah, I agree. I totally agree. And you can't... I mean, speaking for everyone, male or female, like, don't feel bad. Don't beat yourself up for having, like, a shitty day or week of training. Like, it just... It is what it is. Like, we're human. Things happen. And we need to take a break. But especially for women, because I just like to throw this out to my sisters, do not feel bad for like a bad training i've had literally and like dom knows because like i check in with him i would have like weeks on end of bad check-ins because my period was late and then that threw everything else off i didn't train going into my period because it's like sister can't train before a period i'm doing it now because it's damn challenge but let me tell you usually i don't do cardio and i don't train before my period yeah but i'm sucking it up and i guarantee my period is probably going to be late this month because my body's so stressed right now and it's just like it is what it is you just you take that l for the week and then you take another L because then your period comes and then you just get back to it. But it's like, you never can win. Am I embarrassing you, Dom? You look like you are. No, it's like I'm, I'm forcing you to train. <laughs> no, this is like I'm making the decision on my own. For the own. record, I don't do her training anymore. <laughs> that is true. Too many periods. Anyway. Um, isn't there, isn't there uh, like, uh, I, I think I've heard of this, like some coaches – purposely program deloads around certain phases oh yeah so cycling. i tried to do that when i first started to learn how much the cycle affects training and then i started manipulating my own stuff and i was like i could do this for other women but it's so and maybe it's just like I don't know, maybe I'm not doing it right or I have the wrong approach, but I find it to be so challenging because every woman is so different yeah. and everyone's yeah. cycles, it's not the same. In one month, it might be one way. One month, it might be the other way. So it's just like, it's so hard, and especially if it's a client that can't, like is familiar with training but doesn't necessarily know when to like pull certain things and how to adjust training within a month if that makes sense um and they're like relying on a coach more so for their training like their training um layouts and the template and whatever um it's not impossible but it's very difficult to 
try to I usually just tell my clients I'm like hey if it's a bad like week before your period and you need to like cut back the intensity or just not train at all like I get it when is the best time to train your follicular phase yeah I think so I think you told me that one sorry I muted myself yes yeah, it, I, it is your follicular phase. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, it, there's follicular, yeah. there's luteal, and I actually was I was holding back because I think that this would be an awesome thing to discuss, like more in depth as an isolated subject. Um, but yeah. yeah, the optimal performance is typically follicular phase. Um, your luteal phase is definitely just like you're just. Yeah, I mean out. it makes sense hormone wise. Yeah. Like, Follicular phase just seems because of hormone ratios is just more favorable to training mm -hmm. than, you know, once you get over your ovulation phase into your luteal, that the way your hormones react during that phase, you know, on paper, you you, you could look at it and be like, okay, this, you're not going to feel that good, like training wise right. at this point. Mm -hmm. Isn't follicular phase also when your body weight is like your truest yeah weight yeah luteal is when we start to retain um water yeah. things like that yeah yeah so for a lot of different reasons subjectively and objectively um menstrual cycle definitely impacts um our training our performance our psychological yeah. you know, sort of motivation um to push yourself right you want to talk about uh, an interesting uh, research study would be looking at reps to failure a woman right throughout her entire cycle just that, out. that would be interesting yeah yeah and to add to the best time to get comprehensive blood work done is in your luteal phase uh -huh. yeah. which um that'd be cool which a lot of people you know don't do i've yeah. had to i i've had to tell people we have to redo this <laughs> we have Gosh, to spend the money suck. all over again <laughs> <laughs> because they're like i didn't know and i was like it's in the instructions like I sent it to you. <laughs> Gosh. No, they don't. They'll be like, oh, I was supposed to drink water. I'm like, yes, it's number three on the rules. <laughs> it's also number one as part of a human being. <laughs> or like training, too. I've had a lot of people that like I'll send because that instruction sheet that you've shared with me, Dom, I share that with clients when they're getting blood work done. And I've literally had people be like, do I really have to take three days off of training? Yeah, I mean, even three days off isn't enough. Like you're, that, you really need to take like seven to 10 days off to get mm -hmm. like a true AST, ALT, CK reading. Uh, but I, we do, I say three to four. If, if it's like a bigger guy, I'm telling them four. If they're, you know, not as muscular, I'm telling them three. I think um, that's another thing. Maybe it's a topic for another podcast. I don't know. But I feel like um, oh, I can come on for a hormone blood work if you guys want. <laughs> hey, yeah, that w we can do that, too. I was going to say that people are so afraid of taking like it, it blows my mind that people. I mean, I guess I can kind of understand if I put myself in their shoes. I get it. But like being afraid to take it like the minimum of like three days off of training just to get blood work done is like. They, people freak out like they're going to lose all their progress in three days so maybe no, we can i think do that's something. more of like a mental escape kind of thing yeah the gym's a, an escape for a lot of people and you know their daily lives their daily routine for a lot of them it's hard to not go those kind of people if, if that's really difficult i tell them go ahead go 
stretch, yeah. do a walk on the treadmill, do something that's like active rest okay. to where there's no breakdown happening, you know, nothing, yeah. nothing like that. So that doesn't skew your blood work. Um, just to let them stay in routine, go to the gym still. I'll even send them like 20, 30 minute long mobility drills they can do so that they go, they pretty much do a workout because it's just mobility stuff. And then, you know, one day will be upper body mobility and next day will be lower body mobility. Then the next day is just like a rest day where they usually take it and then they get their blood work done the next day. I dig it. I dig it. Well, guys, um, I don't know if you guys have anything else to say, but we're at an hour, and I ran out of questions. Okay. So. <laughs> I think we got a, a lot of good ideas flowing. Yeah, for yeah, next that time, was too. A, that was a good conversation. Future discussion. Yeah, it really was. Got my mind great moving. All right. Well, tune in next time to the next episode of I Don't Give a Sip. <laughs>